You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Welcome to The Real Wealth Show. I'm Kathy Fetke, and I've got Rich Fetke here with me and today. Good to be here. My <laughs> husband and co-CEO, and today we are going to be doing another Real Wealth Story, interviewing somebody you met yeah. at uh, CG. Yeah, Mike Zlotnik, or Big Mike, is when I met him. I was introduced to him as Big Mike, or the Big Russian. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and just was I was very impressed with his analytical skills, the way he, the way he thinks. And then uh, Kathy and I actually had him underwrite one of our projects to really take a look and a deep dive into it. And he gave us some really good advice and input on that. So so we're excited to have him here on The Real Well Show to see how he got started, to hear a little bit about his life in Russia before. And uh, and we asked some personal questions about that. So we're excited to share this interview with you. So Mike, welcome to The Real Well Show. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate you uh, inviting me. Uh, good to see you again. Yeah. So we would- Great to see to you too, guys. Yeah. It's been a a year of not seeing too many people. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, miss, miss those in-person meetings. Yeah. yeah. So we'd yeah. love to hear about how you got started in real estate and when that was. Sure. So uh, we met through the Collective Genius uh, in person a few years back, uh, but um, been doing real estate uh, sort of part-time since 2000 and uh, full-time since 2009. My story is fairly simple, straightforward. So I grew up in the former Soviet Union. It was Soviet Union when I left. So I was a political refugee from the communist evil empire. And uh, wow. I, I kind of ran away in 2009. I, I don't want to give them the whole story, but my, they killed off my father. My mother and I were political refugees. We arrived in the United States in 89. So we are US oh citizens goodness. and US patriots. Um, so, but I started my career like most ex uh, kind of graduates from the former Soviet Union with engineering and mathematics. I'm a mathematician by education. So I actually went to school here in the United States, got a degree in mathematics from Binghamton, New York. And uh, this is what I, I actually love, love math, computer science. This is where I started. And then I spent uh, uh, almost 15 years since uh, 95 till 2009 in software, starting from rank and file and going all the way through uh, executive um, uh, number of companies. And while I was doing this, I started to invest in real estate. So 2000, I bought my first apartment in New York City. So it's kind of my first uh, uh, home. And How many I, units was that, that first apartment? It was two bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. Oh, so you bought one unit for yourself. Yeah, I bought one unit for myself. I and then uh, I bought a package uh, in the same building off the top of my head. It was eight, eight units. And then I kept buying more apartments. And then I bought a multifamily house in Brooklyn, New York. And I came to a basic conclusion that uh, at least observing what's been happening, everything I seem to appreciate, everything close to the subway was appreciating at about 10% a year. Strange observation, but proximity to transportation was 10% a year on average. And uh, if it was away from the uh, subway, it appreciated a whole lot slower. So there's something to that pretty straightforward logic. And then yeah. I just kept buying uh, apartments and um, uh, then I stopped because everything became too expensive. <laughs> just the, 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 you couldn't get the cash flow. The sad part, unless you're getting a bargain price, you would have to put down 20, 25%, get a mortgage and you barely break any of it. That's New York City. You don't make any money. You only make money on the appreciation. Right. Now it works when you borrow money from the Fannie Freddie 
at four and a half, five percent, and you it appreciates to ten percent a year. It's a no-brainer. That's by the way a golden rule of uh, investing. If you if you the rate of appreciation on your property is higher than the rate on the mortgage, you will wind up ahead. <laughs> you, you guys, big, big number math. I like that. <laughs> simple. Very simple. But you have a lot of single-family residential investors. I mean, this is your expertise. And you could use the same technique everywhere, wherever you go, any part of the country. If the average historic appreciation is 6% and your rate in the mortgage is four, you can't lose. But back then it wasn't that low, was it? It was six. So a lot of the properties, I remember the rates were around 6%. Right. Appreciation was 10, couldn't go wrong. <laughs> well, how did you come up with the down payment? Um, Career and software was making pretty good pay as software executive, uh, saving money, investing, stock market. Uh, so most of my initial capital came from sort of saving and investment, and then um, and, and pulling it out of the stock market and using. The- yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. Got it. Now, were you married and with children at the time? Because sometimes when you live in a high-priced market like New York City and you're, you've got a family, it's hard to save money. I mean, how, how did you do that? It is absolutely true what you what you. I've, I've been happily married to my lovely wife at this mm-hmm. point for over 21 years. We have four kids and a cat, the fifth child. <laughs> so nice. it, it's kind of interesting you said that. Uh, yes, it is expensive. Kids cost a lot of money, uh, no. but... It's, I did okay in software and I was able to uh, invest well and kind of reinvest in real estate. And then you have compounding effect when you buy with leverage mm-hmm. and you get cheap fanny freddy money and everything is appreciating your compounded rate of return. You know, the basic math. So if you're, if your apartment appreciating at 10% and you have uh, 75% leverage, your effective rate of return is in the high teens. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It's not more. So did you uh, self-manage when you started out, when you were buying those apartment units? Well, that's the, the, easy, the easy part about apartment units in the buildings. And the building has super. You give super a Christmas gift and you bring him the good old Russian souvenir called uh, hard currency bottle of vodka. And, uh... <laughs> Smart. Oh, we've never done that. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it actually, you build a relationship with the super. They take care of any issues. You don't need to... Um, at least I didn't need to have professional management company. Yeah, that's genius. Just having the right, when you say super, what, what do you? Superintendent. I mean, superintendent in the building, they manage any problems and okay. tenants just pay. The one technique I've used for years, I've, I've kept the rent below the market and people know never leave. My tenants in number of my apartments, I've had them, I want to say almost since the beginning of time, they, they never left or, 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 or it's been a long time since, since I bought those apartments. And, um, they don't leave if the rent is below the market. A little, a little below market is what you said. Yeah. So how much? Ten percent below the market. Sometimes fifteen percent below the market. Interesting. They, they won't leave you. It is theoretically the way I think about this is the cash flow from these apartments is relatively small. It's New York City, mm-hmm. but appreciation is substantial. I want these apartments to be taken care of. I don't want to worry about it. Whatever I'm foregoing in the cash flow. It, it makes my life a whole lot easier. They pay on time. They 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 don't cause me any grief. So it it, it 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 because it's a highly appreciating market. I want a good relationship with tenants, and I want them to feel that they have a price better than if they went somewhere else. So a long term play. Yeah. It's a long term play exactly. Yeah, yeah. I usually hear the opposite. People always trying to push rents whenever they can. 
Right. Or it's amazing too. We've heard people, you know, it's like they, their property goes vacant for a couple months and they're just not willing to go below market rate. They're like, nope, they get so stuck on one <laughs> rate. And then, you know, they give up two or three months of, of rent and it's like, they could have just you know solved the solved the problem in two weeks. Yeah, they, they'd rather vacant if they can't get the rent they want than lowering it. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Exactly, my observation is very simple: the cost of return and a cost of vacancy is far greater than keeping the rent a little below the market. And you can argue for going a little cash flow, but most of the return in New York City comes from appreciation, not the cash flow. Right. Sure. So let's use an example. Say my rate of return with market rate could have been, let's use an example, 15%, 10 coming from the appreciation and five coming from cash flow. And, if, and the New York City is not five cap, it's lower than that. But I'm just using this as an example. Okay. So if I forgo one or 2% in the cash flow, overall return is still more or less in the same ballpark. But it saves me any kind of aggravation tenants pay, and they are afraid to lose the, the lease. So they that that's sort. Of, I, but I'm I'm also taking into consideration that they've been with me for a long time. I appreciate the loyalty, and I feel that it it it's a two way street. I'm helping them mm -hmm. with a little below the market rent, and they're helping me staying. If I have to, if they leave and I have to turn their apartment, sit vacant for two months, the answer to the question. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what about now? I mean, you, you say New York City has been an appreciating market. It's, it's not right now. Is this a good time to buy? People have been asking me that. Is this a good time? Even, my, even Krista, our daughter, came up and said, why aren't you buying in New York? Prices are down. Is, is that true? So it depends. Depends mm -hmm. what type of investment and where. So I'm in Brooklyn, New York. This is where uh, this market is much more affordable than Manhattan. Manhattan is a ghost town. People are, uh, the, the inventory of oversupplied condos is obscene in Manhattan. A lot of empty condos. They've built through the roof. So the prices for condos for sale and the rental prices for apartments have gone down in Manhattan. Not here in Brooklyn where, where I'm at. For the reason that uh, uh, Manhattan demand came from office commuting. Again, people wanted to live near the proximity of their office. So now everybody's moving to suburbs. They don't have to commute. They don't need the convenience of Manhattan. Manhattan, Manhattan offered Broadway, parks, museums, the nightlife, all of it is shut down. So mm -hmm. from that perspective, uh, Manhattan uh, prices are substantially you know, under pressure. While where I'm at is more residential neighborhood and people live here and they probably want to get away from Manhattan into here. So the demand here is still pretty, pretty good. We're not seeing any kind of substantial softness in, in let's just call them suburbs. Uh, so it, it's Manhattan to Brooklyn, Manhattan to Queens, Manhattan to New Jersey, all these kind of moves out is where people have gone to less, less of density. Uh, as far as are there opportunities to buy? Potentially, uh, if you have a long-term uh, perspective and you can find a good location and you believe in the um, you know, vaccine taking the full effect, the uh, uh, nightlife returning at some point, the city will reopen. Yeah, you may be able to find a discounted uh, price. You, you have to know um, kind of what you're looking for. It's not a trivial uh, play. It is an appreciation play if you can get the right price. You've got to find motivated seller type of situation. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So do you think Manhattan's going to make a comeback at some point? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. think about it this way. Once the virus, I, I, I'm 
speculating, right? I don't have a crystal ball. That's all we can do. (laughs) Well, actually, I like to put it this way. I used to have a crystal ball. It broke. We can't find (laughs) another one for sale. (laughs) But looking kind of into the future, year from now, a substantial portion of the population will be vaccinated. There will be herd immunity. Uh, So I think... Uh, people will start coming back uh, into the nightlife. So once that starts coming back, I think we'll get uh, uh, more population moving back in. Now, the office space, the fact that it's vacant and people are working on Zoom, there will be some level of a comeback. A lot of speculation, will people need more or less office space? Will they need social distancing, greater uh, distance between the, the office? Uh, I, I think an aggregate number of people working from the office will come down somewhat. So the overall uh, demand will be a little bit less um, because of telecommuting. I mean, this has been not a new trend, uh, but at the same time, uh, people will come back. It was something about commuting to Manhattan was a level of prestige. Uh, so I, I think the investing in office space is speculative. If you're a real estate investor, I, I don't know where the office space is going to go. Kind of the downtown, uh, the midtown office may be uh, in, in a depressed state for a long, long time. Residential, it feels like proximity to everything uh, will uh, entice people to come back. Now, the massive oversupply, it may take years to cycle through the inventory. That's just a separate conversation. But the general comeback is going to happen. Uh, Broadway will come back. Um, we'll be living in a brave new world with some uh, in- enhanced and increased telecommuting, Zoom-based and so on, and some return to kind of going to the office. Some people miss it. They actually want to go to the office. They wish they could. So maybe people will work two days from home, three days from home, a few days uh, from the office, maybe shared space, some other kind of um, optimization concepts will come back. But uh, I think Broadway and and just the general tourist uh, coming to New York as a uh, cultural, um, educational, you know, social center of, you know, of the United States. That, right. I, I mean, I'm, there are other, other great cities, but I'm not trying to oversell New York. Uh, but it'll come back. So, is that still your focus? Okay, so so you went from the buying some apartments, and then you went up to then you got the multifamily. So let's continue on this path of your journey here. So 2009, I kind of went full time into real estate uh, as a fund manager. Okay. Uh, it was sort of coincidental, and it was also. Uh, with a purpose. Working uh, for your, just, your own company, your own fund or someone else's? So my good friend, uh, Joel Hoffman, years ago uh, started, he was a friend of many years, still a friend, original Temple Funding, uh, which was a basically uh, a fund that financed short sale flips. If you remember those days. Yeah. Uh, 2009, a lot of inventory investors needed the capital to finance flips. So yes. it was called transactional funding, uh, flash funding, whatever you, whatever word you want to use. So this is how we started. Uh, Joel actually called me, said, I started this company. I, I, I like the idea. I, I did a few short sale flips myself and I financed a few. And um, he still wanted to retain a career in IT. And he continued his career, just said, won't you go run it? Uh, what happened was that I was actually transitioning. At that point, May 2009, 
I was done with my last uh, technology company gig. And here comes Joel, uh, calls me, says, I was actually an investor, original, one of the original investors in uh, Tampa Funding, says, I, I really don't want to do it full-time, but I started the company. Uh, could you uh, join me and, and run the company and be a partner? And so, <laughs> Wow. Just a small ask. <laughs> so I had an option at that point, go back and get a corporate job. Uh, and I was burned out, honestly. There's nothing wrong with software. I love the field, but it's a very different. You had a lot of people reporting to me. It's a, at some point, I want to say 30, 40 people, many departments, some globally dispersed, ton of responsibility, not the lifestyle I really wanted to, to enjoy. So took a pay cut and kind of went into the real estate full-time. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the starting point, uh, how I jumped the ship. And I never looked back. Courageous. <laughs> yeah, the skills you uh, you learn from being a lender are so vital, so so foundational. Because um, you know it seems so simple. You're just lending money, and maybe it's secured in first or second position. But there's you've got to underwrite those deals just like you would if you were buying it, right? Yeah, yeah. So originally we did transactional funding, which was pure arbitrage. So we didn't fund uh, transaction. They called it. A, B, B, C flips, if you remember those transactions. So um, a, an investor would get a property under short sale under contract for say 300,000 and um, uh, was able to market the property before they owned the property. So almost today, like wholesaling. Yeah. They, they secured it a buyer for 350,000. So instead of doing a wholesaling uh, flip on assignment, uh, you couldn't do it. You, know, you no, couldn't do it in the past illegal. because short, it, was, it was not, yeah. You needed a hard cash to close on A to B and then close on B to C. And then resell, yep. Yep. So we, we financed uh, essentially initially A to B when B to C was irrevocably committed and fully funded. We just independently funded there. So it was a bridge loan for a day, two or three days. Wow, uh, that's a business. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was velocity of money business. The money turned and it was an interesting business, but it was short-lived because banks start putting in anti-flip restrictions in the uh, short sale approval. So it progressed. You have to hold it for 90 days. You have to hold it for 120 days. Okay, mm -hmm. no problem. So we started to underwrite and now we had to underwrite. It was more of a traditional hard money underwriting. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the house worth? So if you're buying for 300, flipping for 350, yeah, we'll lend you but 70% of, of the value of 350. So you got to bring some cash called skin in the game and a down payment. And the game kind of moved into classic hard money. Um, instead of a fix and flip, it was just a flip because uh, fix was not necessary on a lot of these deals. Hmm. Uh, and then it morphed from there into the fix and flip. If you're buying a house, you're going to hold it for 90 days. Might as well do carpet and paint and get uh, sure. a little bit higher yeah. value. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we continued and then we, we launched a few, another fund, TF Investment Fund 2 in 2014. And then uh, 2017, we at that point uh, kind of continued to do a lot of hard money deals. But um, uh, uh, what came to me is we know a lot of people through the CG mastermind and other guys who were finding long-term equity deals, just great opportunities. And they wanted financing for long-term equity funding. So this is where we launched uh, a next generation fund called Tampa Opportunity Fund in 2017 to invest in real estate opportunistically. The word opportunity comes from opportunistic investing. Mm -hmm. So we progressed and we launched that fund no longer focused just on the hard money, but more of um, uh, here's a good deal. 
and, and why it's a good deal. So real estate 101, real basic. Can we get this property at this great price? And what's the value as strategy? And it varies. I mean, it could be fixing up apartments, raising rents, or it could be conversion of an old Macy's to a self-storage. Really, strategy varied depending on the um, kind of uh, asset class and the specialist, whoever we invested with. And as you know, CG had some great specialists, some guys in self-storage, some guys in multifamily and so on. So it kind of morphed and progressed from there. So what do you see as the opportunity? We're, we're just about out of time, but um, we, we seem to possibly be presented with another opportunity now in 2021, maybe 2022. What will you be focusing on? So, um, yeah, it's a great question. And uh, uh, here is the... Um, greatest opportunity of the pandemic i you know there are i hate to say the opportunity of the pan pandemic right? pandemic yeah. has been a terrible thing for the world sure. yeah. but what it has done it has differentiated is kind of the 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 winners and the losers unfortunately the, the, there's uh distress created by pandemic and the distress is pretty obvious hotels right so hotels are suffering and uh, it's unlikely they're going to come back very fast and some hotels were damaged or not really functional pre-pandemic Mm -hmm. And then the COVID put a cross on them, kind of knocked them out. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been investing pretty, pretty heavily in 2020 into con hotel conversions to affordable multifamily housing. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, we have Tempo Opportunity Fund. We also launched beginning of the year, completely unrelated to COVID, but we, we planned it and we launched the Tempo Growth Fund. And that fund is heavily investing into the uh, conversion, just one of the opportunities, conversion of hotels into affordable multifamily housing. Pretty basic concept. Uh, so I'll give you some real straightforward ideas. You take some old residents in by Marriott. I call them high flag, but the hotel itself could be in a bad location. Not It could be a good residential, but people don't want to go there anymore. So it's mm -hmm. sitting there. It's a good candidate for conversion in a residential neighborhood. It's not necessarily downtown uh, expensive hotel. It's kind of a B, B minus apartments. Uh, and you can convert to affordable housing and there's a lot of sensitivity to that. So you could take uh, residents, an example, they, they look like small apartments. I mean, if you've been into one, mm -hmm. they, they have kitchenettes installed. So conversion process is not super heavy lifting. You're not massively moving walls, but more of a, you know, lipstick type of a, mm -hmm. and uh, you could turn into affordable apartments. If you could get it at the right price, you sure. can execute conversion strategy. You can you can wind up with a pretty attractive financially uh, project. And it's so, so needed now, affordable housing. Right. Yeah, and you're doing good. You're doing good for the, I mean, I want to call it uh, green investing. I, I don't know how else to put it, but you are essentially repositioning dysfunctional hotel into a affordable housing. Most politicians love the idea. Uh, mm -hmm. If you need some kind of, uh, additional uh, entitlements or permits from the city, they generally welcome the concept. Um, you still have to do work. You still have to make it look good. And you, and you got to rent them out below average uh, rent in that area because they're smaller apartments. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a lot of demand for this. Uh, what's really interesting is we have one investment in um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina now. It's really fascinating is this. Uh, it's intended to be affordable housing development, but it's about a mile away from uh, Wake Forest University. From what we heard, the university itself may be interested to get it for students. They want to—they're price sensitive. They want affordable housing. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Wow. So, 
Nice. Good stuff. And so it seems like looking forward, it's you're kind of an opportunist. You just kind of look for what's mm -hmm. what's working and what fits the model and then adapt to that. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, the word, the, the, I'm not a Wall Street guy. I'm not a professional Wall Street investor. I'm more of a Main Street investor. Yeah. But the Wall Street uses the word allocator. So my job is to allocate capital in the best opportunity. So we shift with the market. We're not trying to... Um, uh, be a, a specialist. My job is to find greatest people on the planet, the best and smartest operators who in the best strategy. So we always start with people. If they are high integrity, high experience, capable operators, we start working with them. We start looking what is their strategy and what their, what their next investment looks like. We start with people the strategy, and, and, and then we decide how much capital to allocate. And we, we watch, I mean, as a fund manager, you know, what's the job number one? Diversification, I gotta make sure we don't overload into anything. Mm -hmm. Even the best strategy that looks most attractive today, if you write too, too, too many checks in that field, you could wind up with overloaded portfolio. COVID taught us one thing, diversification works. If you were well diversified, you observe the hit. And if you were focused on hospitality, or some, you know, enclosed malls. You took it on the chin in a way that mm -hmm. you, know, you can't recover. Yeah. So I would just, I'm going to ask a kind of broader question based on your background, <clears throat> which is fascinating. Uh, I think growing up in Russia, there was maybe not a lot of respect for private property rights. Would that be correct? There was no private property. There's mm -hmm. no private property. There, there was, at least I grew up during socialism. You live in a government apartment. You go to work for the government. That there was no wow. private property. So what should Americans pay attention to? You know, there's these conversations about, are we becoming a socialist country? Are, you know, are we moving towards communism? What, what do you think people should pay attention to to make sure that that would not happen in the way that, um, that you experienced? So, it, you know, I have obviously a set, views and values and having immigrated, I, I can tell you the socialism and communism just don't work. Now there's some certain concepts, social concepts or socialism, socialism concepts that may be reasonable and applicable, but you got to watch out not to dive too deeply in them. Mm -hmm. So taking care of the elder and sick and it makes a lot of sense, sure. but you have to be really careful to give too much power to the bureaucrats. That's one of the major concerns uh, bigger government bureaucrats in charge. It breeds nothing but corruption, massive corruption. Whoever is in charge of whatever it is, they find ways to corrupt, steal the money. The government money goes to waste. So uh, that's one of the major risks and concerns of a big government and will do good for the people, will create all these programs. Mm -hmm. People in charge find a way to corrupt they, they, got, they, they become corrupt, they steal. There's just no way to explain it. In a private enterprise, the owner is in charge. With the government, who is, who, who is their boss? It's, 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 it's another boss in the system. So it becomes, uh, they grease the, they, they call it, they grease the roof. That's one of the expressions in the you know, former Soviet Union. You got to have a roof. Roof means people who put you in that position, you grease them up. In order for you to be successful, you start milking the system and take bribes or um, I'm gonna crack this joke, it, it, it's, it's a true story. So I went to uh, my orthodontist, I hope he's not gonna get, a, I'm not gonna get in trouble yesterday, not me for my phone, for my daughter yesterday. 
and uh, he got a, a vaccine shot yesterday with a new new vaccine. And I ask myself a question: Is he a frontline? He's a great guy, by the way, but he's a is he a frontline uh, worker who should get vaccinated first? Well, the answer is he's well connected. Well, 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 that's the answer. Mm -hmm. The government is in charge of distribution of vaccine. So the decision process, bureaucrats in charge start making decisions. They start giving it to their friends, family, relatives. And when the system is based on somebody making a decision uh, by a bureaucrat, they will make the decisions that will benefit their friends and family first. So one of the major risks of uh, socialism is uh, bureaucrats in charge get more power, more wealth, and um, uh, it, it, it just doesn't work. It's just got to be really careful. Now, what I do like is certain elements of um, when they grew up in the former Soviet Union, they had a great university system and it was free. And mm. Still, there were a lot of corruptions to get in and you had to bribe people. But <laughs> the idea is great, free education, if the government pays for it and it can be maintained some kind of um, free of bribery. Uh, right. and, 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 you know, and it's it. so education is good now medicine i have to say this there's a lot of uh theories about medicare for all and, and having the government essentially ration uh medical care a lot of risk because i saw that in the former soviet union mm -hmm. yeah you get the bed in the, in, in the hospital but if you want attention you gotta bribe the doctor so the moment you start putting bureaucrats in charge they find a way to enrich themselves. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong. It's a human nature, unfortunately. So private insurance, private enterprise in general is better than the government rent program. So I mean, we saw it just in our HOAs that we've been involved in where uh, the people who are on the board of the HOA would hire themselves or their friends and overpay. And, you know, it, it's even on the smallest level, it can happen. So of course, if it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, you might expect the same. Yeah, whether it's socialism or fascism, right? Yeah, you know, it goes either is. way. It's yeah. the it's the higher ups who spin things in their direction, you know, to benefit themselves. That's the big. Yeah, game. I I don't think we have a major risk of socialism in the United States, but we are moving into um, you know wrong direction. So I I I don't want to scare people. Uh, there's some great ideas, uh, but it, it's almost like um, the they promised, it's a myth, it's a utopia. They promise you great results. We're gonna do all these good things. It's the road to hell is, 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 is paved with great intentions. Yeah. So the intentions are good, but the problems in the execution just just, just kill the, 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 best, the best ideas possible, so. Yeah, cool. awesome. great. Thanks oh, for that, thanks for that. Well, it's just incredible insight. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, your history and, and your tips with us on The Real Well Show. You're very welcome. And thank you so much for joining us here on The Real Well Show. We'll have more Real Wealth stories coming with Rich Betke here as my co-host. Yeah, yeah. Woo. Yeah, <laughs> so you can check those out at realwealthshow.com.